listening to Black Cloud Society. Hey guys, and welcome back to yet another installment of Black Cloud Society. You know, each time I produce another episode, I am absolutely amazed and blown away at just how quickly and how far this whole thing has spread. You know, we've got listeners obviously here in the US, but Australia, the UK, and now even Germany. But without each and every single one of you of personal support and feedback, this movement wouldn't have gotten much past the concept phase. So I thank you and obviously appreciate your continued support and continue your current and further discussion of the episodes that I produced. I'd appreciate if you continue to share your favorite episodes on your various social media platforms. And if you get a minute, go ahead and leave us a review. And as always, feel free to reach out with any comments or personal feedback, which I appreciate the most, at blackcloudpodcast.gmail.com. And just a little housekeeping announcement update for those of you that want to represent your favorite podcast in absolute style. We now have a swag store posted and you can find the websites for those. The links are posted up on our Facebook page and our Twitter account. So I'd appreciate if you would uh, represent your favorite episode in the utmost of style. You know, this week's episode absolutely strikes a chord with me and honestly has me kind of fired up. Uh, I think it may have to do with the fact that I dedicated nearly 10 years of my life to um that particular state's EMS system and still kind of feel some form of misplaced loyalty but you know with the recent events that have been discovered and more importantly the alarmingly and honestly sickening though not surprising response to said discovery of events I'm actually embarrassed to say that I was a provider in that state you guys are in for an absolute treat this week so I had a Hope that you continue to listen in this week as we discuss the published data surrounding the state of Rhode Island's airway crisis. For those of you that may not be aware, it was recently discovered and then published in the state of Rhode Island that over the course of the past two and a half to three years, uh, 11 separate patients have been brought into local area hospitals with not only misplaced, but unrecognized misplaced ET tubes. And unfortunately, that ultimately resulted or at least contributed to the death of these patients. Uh, alarmingly enough, not only were these tubes misplaced and unrecognized by the EMS providers placing them, but they seemingly, according to the article, went unrecognized or at least Un, unreported by those hospitals over the course of that two and a half years, only to be discovered by a doctor conducting a research project on cardiac arrest data in the state. 
that discovery obviously placed a spotlight on the state and the agency devolved and 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 said discovery created a, a knee-jerk plea for removal of intubation from the state's allowable skill set. However, after much deliberation and what the article depicts was a near riot situation at the state protocol advisory board meeting, the skill set was designated to a paramedic only skill set. But even with limitations on when a paramedic can and cannot actually attempt that intubation. Um, for those of you that are unaware, the state of Rhode Island has this hybrid mid-level ALS certification that no other state in the nation recognizes called an EMT cardiac. The certification is not quite a medic, but not quite an AEMT um, and allows for cardiac monitoring, 12 leads, IVs, a handful of meds, and of course, you guessed it, uh, advanced level airway management. Now, I could do a whole episode on why the cardiac level of certification should be phased out, but the issue of these patients being brought to the hospital with misplaced tubes is not really a matter of which level of care is more qualified, uh, because at the end of the day, your level doesn't matter. I mean, if my daughter at 10 years old could effectively and efficiently intubate the airway mannequin and apparently more accurate than a large number of ALS providers in the state of Rhode Island even recognize when it's in the wrong hole. Now, I know dropping tubes on a mannequin is, you know, significantly different than an actual person. But that being said, with seemingly fewer and fewer live tubes being used as a benchmark for being signed off in both class and ride time, the mannequin has become the go-to for gauging competency. So if my kid can secure an airway under the same standard that the medics and cardiacs in Rhode Island are set to, someone give my kid a job. I mean, I, I say that somewhat in jest, but in all honesty, the whole situation is beyond embarrassing. It doesn't matter how high your level of care has reached. I don't care if you're a doctor, medic, cardiac, basic, or 10-year-old girl. It does not matter who is the more qualified individual to drop the tube if you lack the basic clinical assessment ability to simply confirm its proper placement. I read a number of comments on various message boards and articles that are arguing about um, which level is, you know, the, the, which level of care is better and who's more qualified. But the issue goes much deeper than an individual clinician, deeper than a single agency, Deeper than a regional education problem, but I feel as though it's an entire system, uh, a, an entire statewide system failure that is now looking for essentially a scapegoat because light has been shed on a culmination of issues that are only of concern because the death of these poor people was published. So now there's no choice but for the state to go beyond reactive and provide some damage control when perhaps a bit of proactive enforcement could not only have benefited the agencies that are seemingly deficient, but also the lives of these patients involved. But that's enough of my ranting about that situation for now anyway. Joining us on today's show is an individual that has served in multiple healthcare roles at a number of agencies in the state, but also holds a seat on the Ambulance Service Advisory Board, which is responsible for not only setting the state protocols, but also the rules and regulations surrounding EMS across the state. 
I invited her on the show as a representative of the advisory board to discuss this issue of the unrecognized and misplaced tubes and not just the concerns that I had or the struggles associated with said events, but to discuss and possibly debate what, in my opinion, after having been involved in that system for nearly 10 years, is the underlying cause. And that's where our guest joins us today. Bethany Gingerella, welcome to the show. I wish it were here to discuss a different topic other than a blatant show of incompetence within the state, but nonetheless, I'm glad you said you could come on. Thank you for having me, and it's a pleasure to be here. As I've already introduced to everybody else, um, everybody else is well aware of the fact that you you hold a seat or position on the Ambulance Service Advisory Board. In that role that you play, or what you've seen, let's put it that way, what does a board member, or I should say how much input or influence does each member have? And by that I mean like, do decisions like allowing or removing certain skill set, like intubation from a group of providers, come down to a vote, or is it just more of a consulting type role where like the chair of the board makes the final call all right so kind of a very difficult concept to understand so the ambulance service advisory board and i may be jumping ahead and messing things up here but the ambulance service advisory board uh, as a direction to the department of health to guide ems practice in the state um, inevitably the director of health makes you know decision in regards to protocol changes, et cetera. So the Ambulance Advisory Board in history served as the caveat for that to happen so that she had access to people within emergency services and or stakeholders within the emergency medical service arena opinions and hopefully based practice to guide those changes. There's 25 people on the board and everyone holds one vote. However, majority of the individuals on that board uh, represent sectors of the state. For instance, I represent Washington County, which includes um, numerous departments, some of whom I will name of being Charlestown, Westerly, Hope Valley, Oshway, uh, et cetera. And then there are other regions in the state represented, so you get the whole region. Um, there is paid fire, volunteer fire, et cetera. Um, some elected officials, some members of the private uh, public, and uh, physicians to guide the whole aspect of care. Do other regions have more than one representative? So are there other regions that may have more than one vote in, like, can they influence, I don't know, like, Say, for instance, you said you represent Washington County. Are there um, like two or three representatives from another county so that way well, you get one vote for Washington County, but yet, um, say, South County gets four votes? Is that a thing or is it pretty much, you know, each region only gets their one vote? The regions are pretty well spread out to one vote. Um, where you will see disparities is um, paid versus volunteer services, um, which kind of reflects the overall atmosphere of the state and the fact that there is more paid uh, EMS or firefighters in the state than uh, volunteer services. 
So when you mention other services and other outside influences, um, if I understood what you said correctly, it's more of the entire board serves as, the, while everybody does have a vote, the board itself serves as more of a consulting firm, if you will, for the state to make its final decision. Is that an accurate representation? That is correct. Okay. So with that being said, how much influence on either the board or even those at the state level making the decisions, how much influence do outside forces like uh, like those private ambulance companies or even like the fire unions have in how far that vote goes? So all of those two mentioned sectors that you have do have individuals sitting on the board itself. Um, and they do have the right to public comment. So all of the ambulance service advisory board meetings, whether it be the actual full board meeting or committees where the majority of the work is done uh, to make the board meetings efficient are all open meetings. Thus, they can come and do public comment and have their voice heard. With everything said and done, um, obviously we know that the March 2019 board meeting put the airway discussion back on the table in the beginning of 2020 uh, for the Rules and Regulations Committee to discuss if the best decision was made in regards to protocol changes uh, for the residents of the state of Rhode Island based off of concerns expressed at that 2019 meeting. Since you brought up the 2019 meeting that, you know, was pretty much mentioned in the article in question. Um, do you feel as though the decision to profoundly limit the skill of intubation was a knee-jerk reaction to that study? Or was this previously on the table as being discussed as a regulated or, or more higher regulated skill than it was in the past? So this actually was already on the table at the Rules and Regs Committee based off of Airways 2 and PARP um, published in 2018 trials, which showed favor towards blind airway insert devices in perceivably neurological survival in cardiac arrest victims partially in relation to first-pass success rates. Um, I guess PART would be probably the closer study for uh, U.S.-based cases, which showed intubation at a 66% uh, first-pass success rate, whereas blind airway devices 92% of the 27 agencies um, surveyed. So I think that was the guiding force of the initial decision to limit blind or, or sorry intubation within the state and then I think the second force of that was um, for sure the data that came out of the charts surrounding the 30 minute um, on scene time for CPR and whether it was beneficial to the patients of Rhode Island which revealed intubations that were unrecognized esophageal intubations upon arrival at the hospital.
Well, that's what I was just going to say. I like with the data that was previously presented in those studies, it meant, you mentioned the first pass success rates. The data that came out with the state has nothing to do with first pass success rates. We're talking about completely unrecognized the fact that these tubes are not in the appropriate place. So, um, when I when I saw that data come out, I was just absolutely baffled at the fact that not only you know did we blatantly not recognize that these tubes were misplaced, regardless of first pass, second pass, third pass, it doesn't matter what your pass is, that's not in the right place. But furthermore, the fact that it took nearly three years for these things to even be discovered, I was like, what in the world is going on with this? system-wide issue. So I'm very much so right there with you. Um, I was under the fact that we could have missed um, misplacements of endotracheal to proceed from not utilizing the gold standard of endotracheal tube confirmation maintenance of placement being waveform capnography. However, after sitting back and looking at this from a global picture, the um, Minimum standards list doesn't require waveform capnography of services. I was actually just gonna bring, I, yeah, I was actually just gonna bring that up when you mentioned the gold, the gold standard being obviously, you know, digital waveform end title. Um, mm -hmm. Up until I. I had that very same question and did a little bit of research on this and not only for the research, but given the fact that I've worked in the state for, you know, previously almost 10 years, but the, the fact that the protocols up until the most recent version that went out listed, you know, color metric or digital, if available was the keyword, if available only now in the protocols that were just released, as I say that the digital waveform is mandatory. And like you said, as I was baffled when I actually looked at the minimum, you know, required equipment list and saw that the only thing that was required as far as confirmation device was color metric. And yeah, I was like, <laughs> I was beyond surprised that, because actually reading one of the, actually a couple of the message boards, um, what prompted me to look into the minimum, you know, equipment standards list was reading a couple of the message boards and reading some of the fire guys that were responding across the state saying that they don't even have access to digital waveform capnography. I'm like, how do you not have access to the gold standard of what is confirmation? So I looked into it and sure enough, it was not, it's actually even on the, the current list. Now I pulled it up to today, this afternoon, I pulled up the minimum standards list and it's still only color metric is required. Mm -hmm. So I think as the state we've grown um, world from when uh, joined the state 10 years ago and had very antiquated uh, protocols at best, we've made a, a huge jump forward to increase those protocols and increase access to um, critical care upon activation of 911, for lack of a better word. We still are light years behind um, other areas of the country in regards to getting the minimum equipment lists up to where they need to be for numerous reasons um, throughout the state in general. And um, that has definitely drived some difficulty and certainly a whole ton of compassion towards these poor providers who 
didn't recognize that their endotracheal tube got either dislodged during transfer or just wasn't placed right initially. And they transfer patient to the hospital like that. Um, I don't get business to do untoward harm towards a patient. I really think that their were probably the best they could provide to that patient given what they had to work with at that point in time of their care. But we need to do better. Oh, we definitely need to do better. So what is, uh, well, it's kind of a two-part question. Number one, what is the a collective is the opinion of this board, but follow it up with what is your personal opinion after the fact of what is the, what has been determined to be the most suspect underlying cause of the fact that not only does the, you know, first and second, possibly even third pass success rate in the state suck, but the fact that we're unable to even recognize the fact that these tubes are in the right place. Where, number one, does the board feel that originates? And follow up with where do you personally feel that originates? All right. So in regards to the board's opinion, in my opinion, I think you're going to see some similarities. I think we agree that um, training is definitely a challenge in the past, we have had the ability to get people into ORs and into actual EDs to intubate very easily during their initial training programs and potentially while they're in places at services as a, mem- as a mechanism of quality assurance if either their service wanted it or they wanted it. That act to those live intubations has substantially decreased due to numerous factors being just generally we don't intubate as many people as we had in the past due to um, non-invasive mechanisms of minimizing the need for intubation and just the uh, ability of programs to gain the contracts with the hospitals to get those in. So I think training is a huge, huge part in this so that these individuals can keep these skills up because I don't think the intent of the board point out that any, whether it be cardiac or medic, uh, didn't have the ability to obtain these skills if they wanted to. Um, it was just how do uh, we make it so that everyone is equal across the board and we ensure safety uh, as it relates to and maintain uh, first pass success rates along with minimizing interruptions with CPR, et cetera. And the second part on the the board was that gold standard of waveform capnography um, would be ideal. However, in some communities, may be cost restrictive at this point in time, um, and that is definitely something else that needs to be looked at when you look at global health in the sense that we want to be able to get you an ambulance um, as close to when you call 911 as possible. And we don't want to mitigate that by a regulation that says you can't operate an ambulance unless you have access to waveform capnography or whatever it may be. Um, However, I will share that some of my concerns about waveform capnography being available in intubation would probably be essential for that role, but not um, necessarily promotion of global health because we want to get ambulances to people as quickly as we possibly can. So in your statement regarding not everyone having access to digital waveform capnography, unless it's my misunderstanding of the 
current rules and regs or the that same that same minimum uh, equipment list. Sorry, yeah, that thing. In regards to in classifying a vehicle as an ALS vehicle, it must have a cardiac monitor, correct? That is correct. Do those cardiac monitors now have the ability to, I guess, be ordered without capnography? Because I, uh, most of your life packs now, unless you're still using a life pack 10, I mean, the life pack 12s, life pack 15s, you know, physio, zoles, whatever, all of them have, you know, digital waveform capnography. So the, the cost effective argument, I mean, a, a you know, an inline capnograph is like six bucks once you make the initial monitor purchase, which they have to have already in order to be considered an ALS ambulance, correct? So, yes, they have to have a monitor. Yes, it is still an option to not include the waveform capnography within the monitors, um, especially when they're purchasing refurb monitors. I gotcha. I was under the impression that, you know, pretty much every monitor on the street right now is capable of obtaining digital waveform capnography. Unlike when I first started in the state 10 years ago, we were still using a life back then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've moved light years ahead of the life pack 10, thank goodness. And we've made accomplishments with acquiring 12 leads. So I'm hoping this can follow that pathway rather quickly. So you mentioned being a strong portion of it being a lack of or breakdown in educational standards. How much of this do you feel responsibility-wise falls on, whether it be at the state level, whether it be at the hospital level, whether it be at the individual agency level, how much of this do you feel falls on the issue of medical direction? So personally, I believe this is hugely related to medical direction. Coming from a service prior, um, or multiple services prior, can't even isolate it to one, multiple services prior, so that the medical direction within the state varies based on service engagement, provider engagement, strong, robust QA, QI involvement, and the fact that that medical director is actually an emergency medical or has backing of an emergency medical physician through um, hands on the ground, uh, physician assistance, et cetera. That's certainly a challenge within the state because without someone reviewing these charts, without someone advocating for the patients on the hospital end being at the medical director as to what the provider could have done better for the patient or suggestions of how to improve care in the future, it's hard to expect that the provider would know where they're going astray. Because like I said, they're not going in this to hurt people. They're going in it to help people. And without someone out challenges they may be having and managing their patients, they're not going to know. You mentioned medical directors from the individual hospitals relaying information to the agencies and the individual providers. But there's a, appears to be a lack of medical direction at the hospital level and that information being passed down from 
that ED physician to the agency and therefore the agency's management to the individual providers. In fact, I read one article regarding this whole issue of the unrecognized tubes and the state medical director was not even aware of the fact that this had occurred in the hospitals that he, you know, manages. How in the world does it take nearly three years to discover that, that you know, that that this occurred and that these that there were deaths, you know, that, that this situation resulted in patient deaths. And yet the information was never passed on from the, you know, physician who recognized the tube had been misplaced, replaced it with an accurately placed tube. It, and that it was never passed on to to, to rectify the situation, whether that be at the, the people above him or even people below him. Is there any uh, regulation or, I don't want to use the term law, but I don't know what else, what other term to put in there, but um, responsibility, definitely. But where does the burden of responsibility fall on the receiving ED physician to pass on the information, whether it be to the medical direction above him or even drop it down to the agency level and be like, hey, just letting you guys know this is what occurred. We need to find out why. Why are these the receiving physicians not passing on this information? So I think there's a, there's a couple things, and I can't by any means answer for the receiving physicians. Um, but I will say I've learned a little bit through this whole uh, process of all of this coming to light um, in the sense that the hospitals are not required to reap these missed intubations or misplaced tubes because the tubes aren't placed by the hospital. So if the physician was to place the tube in the hospital and the physician was to have an unrecognized esophageal intubation and that was found on autopsy because it became a medical examiner case, then the hospital would be required to report it because they had a failed, a missed esophageal intubation. So we know there's challenges with that in the sense that not all cases are ME cases um, in the state and that some patients just go directly to the funeral home. So there's potential you're going to miss them there. So there's a, there's a, if the hospital doesn't own the tube, the hospital doesn't have to report it. The onus relies on the EMS agency to report the esophageal intubation. They would have to be unrecognized esophageal intubation. Um, however, how can the EMS agency be reporting the unrecognized esophageal intubation if they didn't know it happened? So Right. If they're not utilizing the means, you know, the gold standard of confirming said tube, then guess what? They're going to be marketed down as a successful pass rate. So when it comes down to the QA, QI, if the agencies are doing QA, QI at all, which we both know that there are some agencies in the state that don't, um, or, or have very, uh, min or do minimal amount of QA, QI, uh, they're obviously probably on paper going to have very high success rates, but because of the fact that they're not confirming these tubes, they're just marking them down as successful because without the ability to actually confirm them, we're just going to say, hey, it was in, you know? Yeah. And the other challenge, too, is, as we all know, documentation is broadly different from provider to provider and having eyes, water, reading charts through QA and QI. <laughs> um we know it's impossible almost to pull accurate data because people don't always default to using the drop-down menus. And it is a bear to pull data out of a service that does 6,000 calls a year 
to get good intubation success rates, never mind a service that does bull and triple that if they're not using the drop-down fields and being honest when they miss a tube because we've all missed a tube. We've all had to pull it out and put a tube back in, but it was recognizing that it was missed and documenting that we missed it and then documenting the good waveform capnography thereafter if we had access to it. Oh, exactly. I have no issue with someone, you know, missing a tube. Everybody is, everybody who has the ability to intubate misses a tube. If Uh someone out there, if someone out there states they've never missed a tube, then they haven't done enough of them. Let's let's put it that way. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because they're bound to miss. What I do have a problem with is the blatant uh, complacency or blatant, quite honestly, incompetence of having basic assessment ability to recognize the fact that, you know what, this tube isn't the place it should be. I mean, you can generally tell within the first couple of squeezes of the bag that if the chest isn't rising, you're probably not in the right hole. So, I mean, how much of this comes down to the educational institutions on how they're teaching confirmation? We both know the fact that a large portion of the quote-unquote educational institutions in the state, that the quality of education, regardless of whether that's a paramedic class, regardless of whether that's a cardiac class, has profoundly uh, diminished. We both know of, uh, you know, members from, you know, cardiac classes, medic classes throughout the state coming in to do their ride time and their internships and they're getting to us and it's just like, where are these people coming from, you know? Uh, how much of this responsibility do we place back on the educational programs for their lackadaisical attitude regarding basic assessment techniques? So I'm going to say personally, I can tell you that um, I have certainly held a higher standard and probably been more critical and uh, difficult on anyone that I've ever held any sort of educational role with because I didn't want those negative reviews coming back on me as either a person or an educational institution as a whole when they got to the fact of performance. Now, granted, I can't corroborate their ability to function two years down the road from now if they do decide to do absolutely no continuing and kind of just ride their skills from what they initially learned. Um, But I think that that is whether we look at EMT level care or we look at nursing programs or we look at anything, um, I think you're going to see variability across programs. I think the challenge that we have in the state is that we have not everything is as regulated, I guess, as as it could be from my personal opinion. So we don't have a um, dedicated curriculum that you got to kind of go by. Um, We have educational standards and guidelines that have kind of tried to firm that up, but there's still a lot of discretion as to how you go about and teach your programs and what is required of your students and how them to that point. Um, So I think uh, some of it is going to rely on the instructor's um, ethical relationships with these students as well. I mean, yeah, the programs that are taught, you know, have to be taught or at least documented that they're being taught to meet, you know, the national core competencies. However, just because 
you know, yeah, yeah, that's documented that everybody passes the class, you know, but then when they get to the registry, they're struggling in certain aspects mm -hmm. of the registry. And then uh, I've seen a huge or, or I've listened to many, many, many complaints from a variety of programs in the state that when it comes time for remediation, they can't get a hold of their instructor. You know, their instructor is too busy with the next class. And, you know, it's difficult for them to find that remediation because once they've graduated the class portion, you know, you're on your own for the registry stuff, you know. I mean, yeah, the registry is, you know, it can be kind of difficult for some people, but it's not like ridiculously difficult. It is literally a, a test of the minimum allowable standard, you know. So, I mean, if the students are struggling with the registry, it means that we have in my opinion, failed them as an educator to even teach them what that minimum allowable standard is. I mean, of course, everybody's going to have a bad day and, you know, there's going to be ones that have to retest on occasion. But when we're seeing the same programs that have, you know, oh yeah, they got high graduation rates, but they also have high percentage of first time fails at the registry. In my opinion, that displays a significant pattern. And in regards to, you know, it, Perhaps the airway management skills in this state are lacking due to the fact that a large number of these programs, you know, have a tendency to, and I've witnessed this firsthand, to utilize last year's graduates as this year's skill instructors. How in the world can somebody adequately instruct a skill station when they have yet to master the skill themselves? Never mind master it, but realistically speaking, They'll be lucky if maybe they've gotten, you know, more than three live tubes themselves. And that's even if they were able to confirm placement. But I guess, like we already said, if we're not confirming placement, every tube's considered successful. So, but what I don't understand is why is the state okay with just allowing, like we said, last year's graduates with zero experience teaching the next upcoming class what appropriate airway management is when they have minimal tubes themselves because of the fact that previous class wasn't allowed to get in the ER to get their tubes, wasn't allowed to get in the OR to get their tubes, and, you know, like you, like the points we had mentioned before. Mm hmm Yeah. So I can honestly say I don't have a, a great answer for that. I know that um, sitting on educational standards as well, we spend a lot of time of trying to formulate ways in which to ensure programs had solid foundations as it relates to delivery of education, our principles of delivery of education in hopes that if you had a good understanding about how to educate people, you could then take the curriculum that was provided um, via the National Registry with added points from the state to meet the protocol guidances, et cetera, deliver a robot class with great outcomes. Um, but obviously, like I said, that it like the limitation of the board remains that is the state's responsibility to regulate from that point forward and address concerns with programs as they arise. I don't know, I would hope not, but I don't know if data acts data is a challenge for the state. Um, you would hope not with national registry testing that that would be an easier um, component. And hopefully now that we are requiring at least all of the advanced providers now to go through advanced level national 
testing for both the practical and the written portions, that will help a little bit in gaining the data necessary to see how people are doing passing infections. However, that is very new that that is happening. And unfortunately, data takes a little bit of time to shake out. But in the meantime, it's not doing any um, justice to the kids who are going to these education programs with the hopes of they can out of them and feeling like they weren't able to contact or get a hold of their schools once they were struggling post-education. Because those scenarios you described are, in my opinion, unacceptable, uh, but would have to be addressed by the state. When it comes to the different aspects of education, obviously paramedic education is different than cardiac education. Cardiac education is different than the uh, AEMT level of the National Registry. Uh, do you feel as though it is in the best interest of the state to potentially eliminate the cardiac level or at least mandate them to upgrade? So uh, that was a quite twist topic talked on by the Ambulance Service Advisory Board a few years back when we were actually trying to push stuff to national testing to eliminate the state from having to administer that um, cardiac test as they were having trouble with the integrity of the test, the frequency of the test being offered, et cetera. Um, and at that time, uh, the concern was placed that um, there is by far a larger number of cardiacs right now within the state providing care to patients and care would then potentially be very grossly limited if reverted to the state's um, the national AEMT standard and the potential negative outcomes related to degrading their ability to care for patients. Because it would look like a lot of med changes or med, med removals, because as you know, the protocol standards between cardiacs and medics are for the most part, equivocal, minus a few skills and um, some drugs as it relates to the protocols. I don't know if I would personally say equivocal, but I'm, I'm a little biased and have, have honestly had, I don't want to use the word issue, but uh, poor understanding of the need for cardiac level providers for years. But when you mention issues regarding the integrity of said cardiac test. Are they given a skills test equivalent to that of a paramedic since the skills are supposedly about the same well, skills such as, oh, I don't know, airway management? So in regards to equivocality, that comment was only in relation to the um, their testing is not their testing and schooling is not equivocal to a paramedic by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the cardiac program is much, much more condensed, and they are tested out at the National Registry AEMT level uh, for both skill sets and um, didactic, I mean, skill sets and written portions. So is the educational institution's responsibility to validate cardiac competencies so your endotracheal intubations, et cetera, that comes along with protocol scope specific to Rhode Island. So now with the with that being said, with the recent most 
protocol update with them removing the intubation skill set from cardiacs and honestly highly limiting it, you know, even with specific regulations regarding when a paramedic can and cannot intubate now, short of a handful of meds, what would the difference be since airway management is now taken out of the issue of making them either downgrade to an AEMT or forcing them to upgrade to the medic? So I, I don't know what the issue would be. However, I would say kind of there's kind of a double standard in the protocol um, as it stands right now. So we say that you should consider blind airway insertion devices as your first line unless you can justify why a blind airway insertion uh, device would be detrimental to the patient at the medic level. Um, and the next breath, a few protocols later, or maybe more than a few protocols later, we say with medical direction and a training program, you can gain RSI capable skills within your agency. So I think the goal is to promote the skill set of the medic and get the medic skill set uh, to mirror the national as much as possible in my opinion, uh, and I think you're seeing that as the protocols expand, it seems to be given more and more leeway with the ability to demonstrate competency to gain the skills you were trying to do. So the state is concerned about various levels of EMS providers being able to confirm appropriate placement of said tubes However, we're going to allow certain aspects of, of providers to give RSI. It makes zero, zero sense to me because the last thing I want is someone who has no ability to confirm a tube dropping paralytics on somebody. So I, I 100% agree with you there. Um, and it is my hope that the educational program designed to that and the medical direction range on that are very, very tight to prevent any unrecognized esophageal intubation or just a general failure to intubate um, once someone is paralyzed. As we all know, that is going to be 100% catastrophic and oftentimes potentially could have been prevented uh, if we at least gave non-invasive devices a little bit of a try if it was appropriate patient. All right. I know I mentioned earlier in the show before before I brought you on and brought you up to speed as far as what's going on that I didn't want to make this episode about, you know, which level of certification is better or which is the more qualified provider. But you mentioned the fact that there are far more cardiacs in the state than there are paramedics. Um, do you feel as though there is an equal representation of all skill levels on the board or how many of the number one how many of the board members are actually active ems providers and secondly the follow-up is how what is the split between you know medic cardiac basic advanced whatever levels there are is there an adequate level of representation across said board members or is it skewed to the cardiac side 
And a third follow-up, does that play into how things get voted on? So I personally don't know everyone's licensure level, um, but I can think of a good handful off the top of my head um, that are paramedics. So I would say it's probably going to favor more towards the paramedic end on the board, but I don't know that to be 100% true um i just know that the four or five people i can think of right now off the top of my head are paramedics who are still actively practicing how frequently practicing i don't know but they are still taking runs within their systems gotcha okay because i know earlier when you first mentioned the board you said that i believe there were 25 members i just or or a representative number of whether or not 25 or all 25 are present at the same time you know neither here nor there but i know you mentioned that there were uh 25 members i wasn't sure uh percentage wise how many of those are cardiac level versus paramedic level versus basic level and if that may or may not sway a potential vote i mean it, it definitely could if I, I mean, if I knew the percentages, I could speak to that better. Um, I don't know the percentages off the top of my head, but I, I definitely could see how it could skew a vote one way or another. Um, it is my hope that everyone is vote, voting based off of um, the evidence and not their personal opinion or um, belief of their practice of care. But as you and I all know, that's absolutely no guarantee in any uh, voting body anywhere in this nation. So, And again, like I said, I didn't want to make this out to be like uh, who the quote unquote more qualified provider is because in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter who's the more qualified. The more qualified individual is the one who has the ability to recognize that it's not in the right hole in the first place, which as we did, I think we came to an agreement thus far in our conversation so far that it's not necessarily individual provider basis. It's not individual agency basis. It's not specifically an education aspect. It's not specifically a medical direction aspect, but it's an overall breakdown of all of those systems put into one giant fiasco. And, and that is exactly it. It is a, a bunch of contributing factors that unfortunately um, collided to create this issue. Um, It'd be interesting to know how it, uh, how the issue pans out through the rest of the state and not just um, the lifespan um, system where this evidence was done uh, to increase the data set a little bit and see what the data shows globally. But either way, um, if it was your eyes family member, if it was you and I's coworker, uh, we'd want those esophageal intubations recognized. And I think as a state, we owe it to our providers to make sure they have all of the tools and training and whatever else they need to ensure that they um, can recognize these uh, tubes to be where they need to be throughout the entirety of the transport um, to include moving over to the hospital stretcher until uh, that tube is confirmed by the physician who's leading the code. And regardless of, you know, who happens to be at fault, 
like we like we said it's not an individual person not an individual agency whatever the the system itself is at fault what is the plan of action besides just you know removing the skill set or or highly limiting the ability of a said skill set what does this does does the state have a plan of action on uh how to improve said ability to not not just intubate but to confirm said placement so that this does not happen again so i think this is a kind of multiple fold answer as well um the the ambulance service advisory board has thrown this conversation back on the agenda for the rules and regs committee come january 2020 when the protocols as themselves are re-looked at and adjusted based off of evidence to guide change so that will be re-looked at and hopefully um, a good subset of information or data has been pulled uh, from the state side to be able to say uh, what we know to be documented as successful intubations versus unsuccessful intubations what we know to be the capabilities of services globally what we know to be the barriers and how do we begin to rectify those barriers because I think a huge part of this is going to be knowing the individual barriers that present across the board because without knowing the barriers it's almost like you're making blind decisions inadvertently and no one wants to make a blind decision inadvertently you want to make the best decision the first time so that we don't have a decision that's going to impact patients negatively and have a decision that's going to impact patients positively in the end. Well, I think the biggest barrier statewide and, you know, what I've seen in my time there in the various roles that I've held within the various services and systems I've worked in is that it is a rather small state and a large majority of agencies, whether that be at the state level, whether that be at the local level, are, I don't want to say against change, but resistant to change because, you know, we've always done it this way. A lot of agencies that I've seen, a lot of even the medical directors that I've seen have a mentality of, well, this is the way it's always been done. It's never, you know, had issue before. But I think now they're realizing that the way it's always been done is exactly what caused that issue. And I, I think the other thing that's come to light, too, is that there is a whole, with forcing, for lack of a better word, everyone to go to um, state-based state charting, there's a whole bunch of data out there that wasn't available as well. So I think educated change can happen now because the people who can assist in giving the individuals who need the proper information to make decisions can have that data at their hands and be able to justify why they either voted away or they had conversations with the representative of the board to support or deny a change based off of the evidence that was available based off actual hard data versus, hey, you know, when I did it this way, it always worked, and there's nothing to support patient outcomes or 30-day survival rates or discharge neurologically intact rate, whereas we potentially have the ability to gain some of that information now. But I think also regardless of, you know, like you mentioned, the as we move forward, the increase in access to said data points, 
The other issue that needs to be looked at is the Department of Health doesn't necessarily have the resources they need to even analyze that data and come up with an appropriate plan. So I think it's just a lack of, like we said before, a system-wide malfunction that culminated to, unfortunately, the death of these people that are making us, you know, come, basically forcing us to come together and sit at the same table, regardless of our certification level, and look at, hey, look, this is not right. We have a problem, and it needs to be addressed. Yeah, or look at, hey, I I know this is what we said we've done for years, but this is what the trend is showing from the minimal reporting we know we have in the system, because like I said, not everyone's using those nice drop-down boxes that forces you to grab the data, and at a state level, um, if they weren't minimally staffed in uh, EMS, they were, are certainly under, under, understaffed in, in EMS to go through and read people's narratives to see what they actually did. So they're really, truly going to rely on, on drop-down boxes. However, um, how do we get that data analyzed? How do we make sure the data isn't skewed towards one person's perspective or the other person's perspective, but truly a representation of what's going on in the state? and improve outcomes for our patients globally because I think inevitably everyone has to want to improve outcomes um, for the patients they serve globally because whether it is me or a representative of some a governmental representative they still have constituents that you kind of have to support and address and if their constituents find out that we're supporting and addressing negative outcomes, they're no longer going to have the support to hold the seat they hold. So that too will cycle itself out if that is the case. However, I don't think that is currently the case. I think people want to make the best decisions, but are hopefully limited by lack of access to what they need in a not functioning system. A system that definitely, definitely needs to be revamped. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. And a system that needs to be supportive towards the providers so they have what they need to do their job. And I think it would be uh, remiss in saying um, that I believe that although that NPR article called out some very important data people needed to know, they failed to really truly talk to anyone on the Mental Service Advisory Board, but more importantly, really potentially cause the demise of a career unjustly by making assumptions without having all the facts. Well, that's the media for you. You know, that they're good at that. Mm -hmm. It's just spewing out stories before they have all the facts. And that's another reason why I wanted to have you on, not just to hear your personal opinion, but to also figure out the, you know, the gist of, of where the the state stands and, and what their plan of attack is and where the Ambulance Service Advisory Board, how that whole situation comes together to culminate into what makes our protocols and, and, and rules and regs. So mm-hmm. um, that was the main reason why I wanted to have you on is, is because of the fact we all know that, you know, in this business, the media has a tendency to put a certain spin on things and things aren't always as they seem, but I think we can both agree that um, 
there's a profound, profound issue with the way things are currently done, currently monitored, current medical direction, oversight, educational standards, uh, individual continuing con ed standards, individual clinician standards. They all, all definitely need to be revamped and uh, advocated for. Absolutely. I think this, um, if nothing else, will spark some um, much needed advocacy to the point. And I do have uh, strong hope that it can be rectified. I do think you have some really strong physicians sitting on the board and serving as guidance to the board who can um, help drive significant change for sure. Well, it has been good thus far. We are uh, running a little longer than I usually like to, but it's definitely a subject that needed, <clears throat> excuse me, needed to be uh, delved into for not only clarification purposes, but to further shed light on the situation and to uh, hopefully educate some people as to what's not only has occurred, but what the plan of action is to prevent future occurrences. So I thank you for the opportunity and uh, coming on the show. Uh, one thing I do want to get in the habit of uh, of doing with the guests that I have on the show, I started this with the very first guest I had, but I'm going to ask in closing our guests the same three questions because I'm sure I know you have followed the show for a little while, understand the mission statement of the show and what, what it's all about and so the first closing question I have for you is, what do you feel was a pivotal moment, pivotal patient, or even a pivotal scene that changed your course or at least changed the very way you practice medicine? So absolutely. So um, I went back and forth multiple times in answering this question in the back of my head, as I can think of many uh, patients or scenes that have impacted me and my career and continuing my education uh, into different avenues as well. However, very early on in my career and something that certainly shaped me into the provider I am today without giving too much scene details, uh, as we all know, agencies affiliated with, etc., um, had the unforeseen ability to respond to a horrific motor vehicle crash that required um, multiple agencies to extricate patients and a lot of just plain out chaos on the scene, um, coupled with known victims, et cetera, um, all that you can imagine going bad, going bad, um, and really being the uh, lead ALS provider providing care for these patients. Uh, due to everyone else being wrapped up in different parts of the scene. And the the big takeaway point um, that I took away from that scene and that kind of guided my uh, the rest of my EMS career was my, um, I don't want to say inability to manage the patient because the patient was managed to the best of my ability at the given time, but the inability to really truly control communication and make sure it was effective between all of the agencies on scene and to ensure that um, things went slow and methodical yet fast enough to meet the needs of the patient um, who was going to have a catastrophic demise anyway based off mechanism of injury. But um, those are scenes where we grow and we become the best we can be because we've encountered um, some travel or troublesome scenarios. 
Um, but the scene had high emotions. Um, there was significant communication barriers, uh, for lack of a better word, lack of communication, uh, real lack of collaboration between departments and resources on scenes at times, uh, depending on the communication barriers, and just general chaos. Um, and what I brought out of this scene that kind of shaped the rest of my career was the fact that, number one, um, I wasn't going to be, I, I needed to make myself uh, more forceful in my communication as a provider, as a new ALS provider. I was just like, okay, I'm going to take care of my patient. I'm going to do what I have to do for my patient and um, really disregarding the people around me if I had to um, and their banter, but their banter at times potentially impacted the patient um, and how to increase my interpersonal skills as it related to that um, and my interpersonal communication skills. Cause let me tell you, if a death notification could go bad, that one went like really, really bad. <laughs> so I definitely fostered my ability to be able to have those conversations with patients and made it my mission for the next whole bunch of death notifications until I got really good at it to do every single one of them. Um, not because it was anything any one of us wanted to do, but because it was a known weakness of mine and I knew I needed to educate myself and have practice in facilitating what I learned. And then um, definitely, don't know why, but definitely fostered my uh, desire to go into leadership and work towards advancing emergency medicine, despite how much of a headache it has been at times. I think I've had the ability to make some good impacts on um, the fields within Rhode Island or the providers that I've impacted. And that uh, is truly, obviously, Another reason we go into this is to make the field a better place and uh, safer and more supportive of the people we work around. Okay, I can res I can respect that. I don't know if that kind of answered both number one and number two question, but I'll ask number two question again, or, or I should say I'll ask number two question to you, and then you can kind of decide whether or not you already answered it with question number one, <laughs> which you may have, but I don't know. Uh, for question number two I have for you is thus far in your career, what has been the most important lesson that you learned? So I will not be as wordy on this one, number one, but I will take the opportunity to answer this one. And I think the most important lesson that I have learned in the career thus far is that we are all too incredibly tough on one another or abrasive towards one another. Um, whether it is intended to be that way or not, there tends to be a lot of, um, whether you want to call it in-station banter that has nothing to do with providing care to patients that may or may not impact the way your partner or your fellow truck's ability to function and deliver care to the next patient they encounter. And I'm not talking about like the good constructive criticism that makes us all better providers that we need to hear from our peers when we screw up or do something bad. I'm talking about stuff that has nothing to do with EMS and how to try to curb that. Because I can tell you during my leadership career, I was far from successful at curbing that. And I think um, that it's a challenge we're going to have to overcome in the years to come because it's certainly not conducive environments to work in. It's definitely toxic. It definitely impacts our patients. and 
we need to be more compassionate to one another in general because we're seeing some really bad stuff. And as we all know, taking it home and doing stuff with it, we shouldn't do with it. And the only way we're going to really truly overcome that is to be compassionate to one another. And all that in-station banter can't occur if we're not, or can't continue to occur and have that same compassion go alongside of it. Well, it's definitely, definitely an industry where I have seen, and don't really even understand it, but we have a tendency, healthcare in general, I think actually public safety in general, I've seen it, you know, I've seen it in corrections, I've seen it in hospital, I've seen it, you know, on the police departments, fire, EM, literally all aspects of public safety, I think, and it, we have a tendency to eat our young and euthanize our old, for lack, for lack of a better term, but, um, but I agree with you, we need to to work together and find ways to to curb that behavior because we're not really sure of the or we can't be certain of the ramifications that it has number one on our patients but also us as individual providers uh which kind of really leads me into the third question and um what is one thing that you wish you knew before you started in this path so although i must say starting this question i can't say it would have changed my career choice as I'm very happy to be in emergency medicine at this point in time um, and to see where it is kind of transitioned. However, um, when looking back on my career, I would say it would have behooved me to know earlier on the impact that the career in general would have on my kids and their growing up and their, I want to say at times their ability to cope because how you remember this from when you were young of getting packed up and put in a car and go to pick somebody up when they broke down on the way to New Haven and didn't get a full night of sleep or whatever it may be, your career definitely impacts your kids. And sometimes it's not as calm as that little scenario <laughs> that I just described. Oh, for sure. Especially when they're, when they're younger, you know, when they don't understand why, you know, you may have, you know, missed a birthday party or missed a holiday, Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever, because you're, you know, you're, you're, you're on the job but so I think it definitely impacts them for sure when they're younger and maybe not as much when they're older or at least they're not you know as vocal about it when they're older but I definitely uh can definitely understand that that point of view uh especially you know from what I know of of, of you having you know already started this career path before you had your family whereas I came into this already having kids so definitely to two very different perspectives as far as that spectrum goes but mm-hmm. well i um we are looking at um well over well over an hour probably close to an hour and 20 minutes now which is by far the longest one that has occurred yet so uh with that unless you have any closing remarks we will wrap it up and i thank you for coming on well thank you very much for having me and hopefully everyone stays engaged through my long-winded responses and hopefully it was enlightening in regards to um where we need to move forward in the state of ems in rhode island awesome i appreciate your input and i'm sure everybody else will too i mean no pressure but the show's kind of gone international now so (laughs) that's okay (laughs) thanks for coming on thank you for having me and there you have it guys a variety of opinions on this very very controversial topic I hope it was uh, somewhat educational, somewhat enlightening, and that you were able to uh, get something out of it. If anything, make sure you advocate, advocate, advocate for the highest 
standard of care, whether that be you on the personal clinician level, whether that be in your educational institutions, whether that be actually advocating at the state level for the changes that you feel as though are going to be in the best interest of your patient. Because if you don't push yourself and continually advocate for continuously improving the standard of care and providing the highest absolute quality of care, the standard of care will be the minimum standard. And as we discussed in previous episodes, complacency kills. Until next time, guys, look out for yourselves, look out for each other. Keep your boots polished and your head held high. The views and opinions expressed in this production are in no way a substitution for your agency's policies, procedures or guidelines. The content and ideas are that of Black Cloud Society, and in no way reflect the views and opinions of the employers of those involved with this production. We thank you for tuning in.